Honour and glory to God, peace on earth and favour to all people. Lord, develop a new heart inside all of us and give us your Holy Spirit. Help us and guide us in everything we want to learn today. Amen. Joseph sat in a cold, dark Egyptian prison cell, trying to keep his feet off the ground so the rats wouldn't bite him in the night. And as he sat there, he thought to himself, the same few questions keep rolling around in his mind. How could this have happened to me? How could my brothers have done this to me? Where are my family right now? Is my father even still alive? Does he think that I'm dead? How could God let this happen? Has God abandoned? As Joseph wrestled with these questions, he desperately tried to stay warm with only a tattered, filthy blanket wrapped around him as the wood whipped through his Egyptian cell. And as he slowly fell asleep, his mind turned to what had happened over the last few years. So I'm going to tell the story of Joseph from uh, Genesis chapter 37 onwards. You're welcome to follow it in your Bible if you want, although it might get a little confusing. Um, I'm going to stick to the main points of the story, but I might do a little bit of storytelling there and then, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about rats, but I'm sure there were rats. <laughs> so Joseph's mind wandered back to when he was just 17. He was a shepherd boy in a shepherding family. He was the 11th of 12 brothers, so he had 10 older brothers. Poor guy. He was the son of a man called Jacob who was one of the three patriarchs who God had promised so much to. He said, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family line, and you're going to have descendants that are like more than the stars in the sky. So Joseph was the son of Jacob, and he was his favourite. Born to Jacob when Jacob was older, Jacob favoured this one son, and that made his brothers furious and jealous of him. He made him a beautiful coat that was ornamented and colourful and really was a sign of his father's favour but to his brothers it was a sign of he loves you more than he loves us. And this didn't help that Joseph had just said whatever he thought. He had hashtag go further. He just said whatever came to his mind. He, he brought bad reports about his brothers to his father and he doing this and that and his brothers hated him more than and then he started having dreams. So the first dream he had was him and his brothers. And he said to them, he told them this dream. He said, we were all bundling wheat. And my wheat, my bundle of wheat stood upright. And all of yours bowed down to me. And his brothers were infuriated. They said, are we going to bow down to you? Do you intend to rule over us, little brother? He didn't want to any, any favor with them. He had a second dream. And he told this one to his father as well. He said, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to me. And his dad this time said, do you really intend that you're going to rule over us? This is like offensive in their culture. You're the little one. You're going to rule over us? But just like Mary did when an angel came to Mary later on and said, you're going to have a son who's going to be the son of God, the Messiah. She treasured that in her heart. She didn't know what it meant. Jacob did the same thing. He carried it in his mind. But his brothers absolutely just hated this. They were jealous. I think they knew that not only was he favoured by his dad, but 
what God was giving them in these dreams, but they hated it. It's quite similar to a prominent character in a few old Maori stories called Maui Portugi. He was the littlest of his brothers, and he was little and clever and good at doing things, and his brothers despised him. And one day they said, let's go fishing, but we're going to go super early so that Maui doesn't know he can't come with us. He's a nuisance, he's a pain in the head. But Maui found out about this, and he hid in the back of their water underneath something. And one of the versions of the story says that they were fishing all day and caught nothing. And he pops up and goes, let me go fishing. And two of the older brothers were really like that. And they said to him, you can have one chance to fish, and then we're going home. And so he used a special hook made from his grandmother's jawbone and some blood from his nose, and he cast his hook. And he pulled up a fish that, that fought and writhed. It was the biggest fish that him and his brothers had ever seen. And as he pulled it up to the surface, they just gasped like, we've never seen a fish this good. And against his wishes, his brother started hacking this fish apart. And bits came off and it was writhing. And that became Te Ika Maui, which is the North Island of Aotearoa in the story. And the writhing became mountains and cliffs and valleys, and the parts that got cut off became islands. So in the story, this land, the North Island, would never be discovered wasn't for that little despised brother who no one loved. So you might feel a bit like that. It might not be that you're the youngest, but you might feel a bit like Maui or a bit like Joseph. You might just think, people despise me, my own family kind of push me down, I've got my, my place in the family and no one lets me out of that kind of cage. Well, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So when people try and push you down or they, their opinions are negative of you, God is saying, actually, you need to set the standard. You need to set the kind of the spirit of what God's got planned for your life. God has set an example of purity and faith, regardless of what people, even opinions in your own family, say. So Joseph's brothers went off to, um, to graze their sheep in another part. And Jacob said to Joseph, go and check on them, see how they're doing. Go and bring word. And as he went, his brothers saw him from a long way up. And they said, here comes that dreamer. That stupid nuisance of a brother. That dreamer is coming here. Why don't we kill him? And one of the brothers, Reuben, uh, he steps in and says, no, don't kill him. He's at home fish and blood. Just throw him into a pit. <laughs> I didn't get in there, Ruben, but be a bit nicer. Although he did, um, he wanted to, he was going to rescue him later once his brothers had gone. So when Jacob came up, Joseph came up, they stripped the robe off him, the robe that signified his father's robe. They stripped that off him and they kicked him into a dry well or a pit. And as they sat there eating their dinner, kind of laughing about what had happened, they saw traders come by and they said, Why don't we sell him as a slave? those traders who were going down to Egypt. So Joseph was sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. They dipped his robe in some goat's blood and brought it back to his father, Jacob. And they said, does this look like your son's robe? Inspect it. Have a look. And Jacob tore his clothes. He mourned and he refused to be comforted. He wept for Joseph. His sons, his daughters came to him to, to comfort him. He said, no, I'm going to keep this grief all the way to my grave. That's a similar picture to what happened when Jesus died on the cross. People think Jesus was the loving one and God the Father was kind of like standing aloof, kind of like 
you know, throwing down anger at Jesus and, and sort of like, oh, you know, at the whole of the human race. But actually, God the Father's heart broke when Jesus had to die. He was in Jesus. Jesus is God. And his heart broke that he had to do that for the sake of us. And God's heart breaks when we go through terrible times as well. He's not aloof or far off. So, Joseph gets taken down as a slave to Egypt. His father thinks he's dead, and he's sold into the, the house of Potiphar, who's the, the guard of Pharaoh, the chief of the guard. But God was with Joseph. And everything that Joseph did flourished. So, everything he did in the house, wow, things would just happen and it would work out. And, and Potiphar soon realized, everything I give to Joseph is going to flourish, and it's going to go well with me. And we have everything to him. So he becomes the overseer of his whole house. The same that Potiphar only cared for the food that was in front of him. He was like, Joseph's got the rest. He's a man of integrity, and I trust him. I don't have to worry about it, but Joseph has got it sorted. Problem was that Joseph was with the skunks. Do you know that word? If you're younger than me, you won't. Older than me, you won't. It was a cool word, but I realize I'm old now. The skunks, he was, he was handsome. You know, people down the street, the ladies go, Woo, Joseph. Think of Jack, you know. <laughs> so Joseph was handsome and well built, and Potiphar's wife saw him, and she came up to him and said, You must sleep with me. You have to sleep with me. And tried to, tried to grab him. Joseph answered this, How could I ever do that? My master concerns himself with nothing with me around. He trusts me with everything. And then he says this very interesting phrase. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And then, wait, Potiphar, you're talking about, uh, Joseph, you're talking about Potiphar here. Like, how could you sleep with his, his wife? How could you betray his trust? And he says, no, how could I do that against God? And Joseph understood something. He understood that our actions, good or bad, are primarily between us and God before they are to do with other people. So how we conduct ourselves, how we act sexually, how our thought life. Joseph understood that all those things are actually either for or against God. Jesus said in the Bible, even if you do a small act of kindness for someone, you're doing it for me. So when you, this is the good thing about it, is that when you get to act well towards people, and you do good things for people, you're actually doing it to God, first and foremost, not to them, even though they're the one in front of you. So when we think about actions and what we're doing, we think, does, this, does anyone notice this good thing I do? Does this make, even make a difference, this good thing? It's a good reminder of Joseph, he said, no, actually you're doing it for God. So you say, hey, is this blessing God's heart? Is this blessing my relationship with Him? And conversely, when we think about doing things that we know um, don't honor God, it's like, am I really hurting anyone by doing this? By kind of sideswiping these taxes or acting in this way to this person? Or, or doing something behind this person's back. Is anyone really getting hurt by that? Well, actually, our first question is, how is God affected about it? By it? And then we think, how does it affect those around us? So anyway, Potiphar's wife keeps nagging Joseph day after day, and he refuses to even be near her. But one day he comes into the house, and there's no one around. He comes in to do some jobs, and she grabs him by the cloak and says, you've got to sleep with him. And he literally peels off the coat that she's wearing and runs out of the house. And she's left there just holding him. And she makes up a story and says, He came into this house to rape me. 
And when the servants come in, she says, this is what happened. He came in to rape me, and here I am. He dropped, he took off his coat, and when I screamed, he left his coat and ran. That's the story that she made up. And when her husband, Potiphar, came home, he, she told her that story, and he burned with anger and threw his best servant in jail without a trial. I just like to point out here that actually when you, when you make the right decisions for God, it's not always easy and the outcomes aren't even easy. Um, you know, sometimes we think, ah, if I do it God's way, then you know, I'm just going to get millions of dollars. It's all going to be easy, easy times. God will always look after you. He will always reward you for it. But it doesn't mean that making the right decision is easy and the outcomes are easy. You might get slandered by people. You might be financially disadvantaged by doing the right thing. But your Father in heaven says, well done. My son, well done, my daughter. That's worth more than any of that. So this is where we catch up with Joseph at the start of our story. He's sitting in this cold, dark jail cell, wondering, why would this happen to me? How could we go from having these amazing dreams of me leading and influence to me being in a jail cell, accused of something that I didn't do? But God hadn't left him. Not for one minute. In fact, the unusual, the special favour of God was so on Joseph that it manifested while he was in prison. The prison warden saw that everything Joseph did turned to gold figuratively. And the prison warden put him in charge of every other person and everything that went on in that prison. Which I think is quite amazing if you go from prisoner to really like leading the prison. Just like Potiphar, the prison warden paid no attention to anything that went on in the prison if Joseph was there and Joseph was because God was with him. And after a while, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he threw his cupbearer and his baker into prison. And they were put under Joseph's charge. And one morning, Joseph comes in to see how they're doing, and they look really sad for him. He says, what's wrong with you? To be honest, I think it's a stupid question, because it was being thrown into prison, and the king of the land <laughs> could just kill them like that. But clearly, he meant, what's wrong with you? More than usual. And so they said to him, we've both had a dream not separately, and no one can tell us what it means. And we're just perplexed, it's weighing on us, and we need to know, what does this mean? Joseph says to them, doesn't all interpretations come from God? Tell me your dreams, and God will give you the interpretation. But sure enough, they tell him his, their dreams, and Joseph says, what this means is that in three days' time, Pharaoh is going to pull you both out of prison. The cupbearer, you're going to get put back to your place of massive influence in the kingdom. And the baker, you're going to be hung and fed to birds. Here's your interpretation. Be encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> Just as he said, after three days, Pharaoh pulls them both out of prison to um, promote one and kill the other. But Joseph says to the cupbearer, I'm sure he didn't say it to the baker because it would have been a waste of bread. He said to the cupbearer, don't forget me. Get me out of jail. Mention me to Pharaoh when you go. Get me out of this jail. But two years go by and the cupbearer just completely forgets about him. How would you feel at that point when you think, finally this is going to work out for me. Finally I'm going to get out of this terrible hellhole of the situation I'm in. Finally my, my saviour has come and then two years go by and you're like, okay, so we've got to How would you manage your heart and your relationship with God in that moment? Pretty tricky. So two years go by and Pharaoh has two dreams in one night. 
It calls for all the magicians and wizards and everything of the land and says, who can interpret this dream for me? I'm puzzled, I'm, I'm troubled, I need to know what this means. And the cupbearer thinks, what have I done? I know someone who can, who can interpret that for you. And he pulls Joseph out of prison, cleans him up and puts him in front of, in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, can you do it? And Joseph says, I can't do it, but I know the God who can. Ooh. I think that is a great way to live our lives. Come up against impossible situations, you think, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the strength, the capacity, the charisma, I can't do it, but I know the God that can do this. So the dream is this, Pharaoh explains. He was standing on the edge of the Nile, and seven fat, sleek cows walk up out of the Nile. And then after them, seven ugly, uh, diseased cows, skinny cows, walk up after the, the good cows and eat <coughs> the seven good cows. The second dream was that there were seven heads of grain, now full and ready for harvest, and going to feed lots of people. Um, and then seven wind-scorched, sick heads of grain come up after it and eat the good heads of grain. Joseph interprets this. The seven cows, the seven good cows and the seven good grains are the same thing. Seven years of a bumper harvest are coming to Egypt. There's going to be so much food, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine in the land where there's just nothing, just dry, dusty, and no food. Therefore, Joseph says to Pharaoh, look for a discerning and wise man. It's like he's kind of writing his own job description here. It's a good idea. Just try that sometime. Look for a good and discerning wise person who can take over charge of this and they can store up food, one fifth of all the food for seven years, and then you'll have enough food to ride out the famine for the next seven. Yeah. And Pharaoh is blown away by this. He says to his generals, there's no one else like this. They're probably thinking, huh? Maybe I can do that. He says, there's no one like, like Joseph. I'm, Joseph, I'm appointing you. You're going to be second in charge of the whole of Egypt. You're going to ride in the chariot next to me. No one's going to lift a hand or a foot in Egypt without you saying so. And apart from the throne, in relation to the throne, it is the only place where I'll be greater than you. Isn't that amazing? To go from a subhuman Jewish prison that was despised by the Egyptians to second in command of one of the biggest empires in the world. From the prison to the palace, Joseph was promoted, and God's words were starting to come true in his life. So time goes on, and it all happens just as Joseph said. Seven years of a bumper crop. So much food. He, um, he's in charge of he makes storehouses around Egypt, and he's, he's, he's keeping a record. But it gets to the point where there's so much food, they just can't record all the food that they've stored in those seven years. But then the famine hits. And there's just no food around. But Egypt is in a perfect position to ride out the famine. And lives are saved because of Joseph's interpretation of the dream and his administrative ability to do something with that. That's a good point too. In the church and in life and in business, we need the visionaries and we need the people who can actually do something with that. If you don't have either, then things don't happen. You need someone to cast a vision and be like, this is what I see. And those kind of people that live 20 years ahead and can't really get to do anything right now. They're just, you know, we're saying, what God is about to do and amazing things. You need to partner them with people that go, right, how do we put the spade in the ground and actually dig and do something with that? So interestingly, this, this slave, Joseph, was used by God to save many lives across Egypt. Even in New Zealand's history, God has used slaves to do amazing things and bring salvation to many people. So, in our history, 
there were many missionaries that came to New Zealand from, from prison. And they, uh, they, some of them were bad eggs, and they did, did bad things. But there was a number of which, number of them. And they came because they wanted to live and die and give away their life to bring the, bring the story of Jesus, of Ibu Karaitsi, Jesus Christ, to the Maori people whom they admired. These great people, some of them great people, they just gave their lives to it but saw nothing happen for years and years. Just a handful of converts, mostly pockets in the north. You know, they just, they slow, they try, they try to love people, try to learn language, try to translate the Bible, but just nothing was happening. Not much was happening. Much like Joseph, they were in a foreign land thinking, we came all this way, but we're not seeing the fruit of what we, the dream that we had. But then things started to change. And part of that was to do with slaves. So in the, in the tribal wars, um, for example, between Ngātipura on the east coast and Ngāpui in the north, they were fighting, and, and Ngāpui took slaves from the east coast and brought them back up to the north. But those slaves found out about Jesus through the missionaries and through what was going on and learning literacy and, and, and the Bible. And when they went home, they had far greater effectiveness as native missionaries than the Bākehā did. So one, one such person was a guy called Tomas Akura from Nazi Paro. His people thought he was dead. They thought, we'll never see him again. And he came back to East Cape, and he, he shared this message, and people hung off his every word. They were, they were battle-weary, they, were, they, just, they had enough of fighting, and he preached about a God that could transform them into Monarchy Tanata, Tanata. A people who honour and care for one another. And he preached about a peace that, that this God could bring. And he was very influential in brokering peace between tribes. And uh, we don't know for sure he tried to stop a particular battle that it, was, that it would indicate he did. But at the very least, what he did was say, if you have to fight each other, you have to do it under these kind of rules. You can't, cannibalism is out. You've got to look after the wounded. We're going to pray. And this, this war that probably would have lasted a lot longer was, was actually shortened in the, in the sort of excess evils of war. All evil, all war is horrible, the excess stuff. He was able to control and say, no, don't do this stuff because it doesn't, it doesn't fit with who we are. And after, after that particular war, both of those tribes, they, they wanted peace, but they also were desperate for the gospel. They were desperate to hear more about Jesus. And him and others, other native uh, missionaries really, they were just in a perfect position to just share about Jesus. And suddenly there was this demand coming for the Bible, we need more Bibles, we need more missionaries, we need more prayer books. And something that the, the Pākehā missionaries could not do for years and years and years was starting to happen through, through freed slaves. I just love how God uses that. People who, hey, we thought you were dead, and then you're going to bring transformation to, to our heart and to our evil. That's the way God loves to Through our weakness, He's strong. So the problem was, was that back in Canaan, where Joseph's family, family was, there was no storing up in the good years. So they were starting to starve to death. And Jacob said to his, his sons, his remaining sons, why do you stand here and just look at each other? Go to Egypt and try and buy us some food so that we might survive this. And when they go to Egypt to plead their case, you know, they're in the line, you know, line of people from other countries saying, please buy grain, you know, we're going to die if we don't. They get to the front of the line. Who are they standing in front of? Their little brother, Joseph. But they don't recognize him. Joseph is shocked to see them. He recognizes them and is absolutely just like emotionally wrecked by the presence of his brothers. 
In fact, he goes through this whole weird sort of situation. He, um, you know, he plays mind games with them, and he he frames them to look like they've stolen stuff. And all the while, he's kind of wrestling with what's going on inside them and what they've done to him. And but he wants to know about his youngest brother. He wants to know is his father still alive? But he's just working through all the pain that he's gone through over the last however many years. Finally, he reveals his identity to them, and they are like terrified, absolutely terrified. They're like, this is our brother who we threw down the well, and now he is second in charge over the kingdom, you know, the biggest kingdom, the most powerful kingdom in our lands. Joseph cries and begs them. He says, come near to me, and he reconciles with his brothers. He says this amazing line. He says, don't be angry at yourselves for what you've done. God sent me ahead of you to save your lives and to save the lives of many others. What an amazing thing to say to people who tried to murder you and sold you as a slave. And at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Can you hear that perspective in Joseph's words? He's like, I've been through hell and back at least twice. I've just, you know, I've, I've, I lost years and years of my life. I thought, I thought God had abandoned me at times. You know, you go to the depths of God, are you really there? It's all your fault, brothers. But don't be angry at yourselves because God was in all of this to save your life and the lives of thousands of others. To me, that's, that's actually, that's the heart of a real... A person who's saying, I want to follow Jesus. It's not a hard road grudge. It's not God or people, you know, my circumstances have to be easy or I'm not going to follow Jesus. Mm. It's saying, and whatever happens, mm. actually God is going to intend it for good and He's going to use it for His glory and use me in Him. Often God is more interested in our heart and what's going on in here than our outward circumstances. I don't say that from a place of, well, God can't break in, God can't do miracles. We love miracles in this church, and I personally love miracles, and I pray for healing on a weekly basis, and I love it. Everywhere I see things that don't line up with the glory of God, I want to pray that, that, that God's love and power breaks out. But sometimes God is saying, how's your heart while you wait? How's your heart while you wait for that breakthrough? And sometimes he's saying, I want to give you some amazing plans and promises that I you know, fulfilled them, but you need to have a heart that can cope with it. But luckily for us, he gives us grace. He gives us grace to change. He gives us grace to, to say, God, I want to I have a heart that honors you. And he doesn't just leave us and say, how are you doing over there? Oh, I'll wait until you're okay. No, he's right in the middle of it with us, saying, I'm going to partner with you, give you my power to see breakthrough in your heart as well as your circumstances. I'm going to have a bit of a, a chance at the end um, just to pray for each other. Whoever wants prayer, if you don't, that's fine. We don't pressure anyone to, to do what they're not happy to do. But if you want prayer, we'll just pray for each other for these kind of circumstances that we might be in and say, God, I want you to give me a good heart. I want to be a disciple. In the good times, I honor and worship you. In the bad times, I honor and worship you because I know that my life is the saving of many people. Interestingly, we are going to be like Joseph's brothers and stand before Jesus like they stood before Joseph. One day we're going to stand before him face to face. And to, in reality, we're, we're going to have, everyone will have a sense of awe when they see Jesus face to face. But you're either going to be terrified or you're going to see the one you've been in love with. They were terrified when they stood before Joseph. They thought, man, 
we, we killed him, we killed him, we tried to kill him, we stole him slavery, and here he is standing before us, he can do anything with us, you know? he can just say, say the word and he can kill us. One day we'll stand before the creator of the universe and we'll be like, okay, what did we do with you, God? And actually the reality is my sin and the way I've lived put Jesus on the cross. Jesus, figuratively speaking, was thrown down that well for my sake. I was the one who kicked him down. He died on the cross because of the stuff that I did wrong and the stuff that hurt God's heart. So when I stand before God, I might be terrified, but do you know what he's going to say to me? He's going to say to me, he says to you now, he's here now, we're standing before him now, he says, don't be terrified of me, know this, that God sent me ahead of you to die on a cross so that you can be saved and you can have life. That's the, that's the grace of God. He doesn't say, yeah, you're going to get what you deserved. He says, I got what you deserved. I was thrown down the pit and sold into, into slavery. For using the analogy of this story. But God used it to raise me up from the cross so that you could be saved, so that you could know my Father. You can wash clean and come to a relationship with Jesus. So my, my encouragement to you is, what's it going to be like when you stand before Jesus? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be awe-inspiring regardless of where you stand with him now. But he's saying to you right now, don't wait to that moment and be terrified in front of me. Turn to me now, so that when, when you see him face to face, he can say, yeah, God planned to save you, and you responded to that gift. You took it, and now we can be together forever. That's what God is saying to all of us. And if you feel like you're at a point where you're like, I'm ready to say, stand before Jesus now and say, I'm sorry for throwing you down the well, down the pit, and I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to live a life that's full of fulfillment and seeing people saved around me. I want to be like a Joseph who may go through good and hard times, but actually God's going to use your whole life to bless the community around you, the people around you, then I'd be happy to pray, pray with you at the end. But I think for the rest of us, really the challenge I want to give us, just hear the words of Joseph, is you might feel like you're already leading in Egypt. It's like, yeah, the pains and the promises of God have come to fulfillment. I'm just I'm in a really good place. I'm being able to influence and love people and see things happen. Or you might feel like, and I'm in prison in this area of my life. God said this, and I am miles away from it right now in this area of my life. My encouragement through this whole story is, where's your heart with that? And where, where's your relationship with God in that? Because God is saying to you, just like the story of Joseph, it might take years. He's not promising quick fixes or an easy life. But he's saying, I'm going to use you to do something that, that will be written in the heavenly history books. That people around you's life will be completely transformed if you trust God through the valleys and you trust Him through, through the high points as well. He's asking us to become a people who are less governed by our circumstances and more, more by the joy that we have for our relationship with Him and be empowered in that. And I, I'm speaking to myself just as much as anyone because I'm on this journey of learning what it means to be motivated by what God is doing in here rather than everything around me. And it's, it's tough. But His grace is better than that. It's bigger than that. Mm. I'm going to pray in a minute, but as I was preparing this talk, I just kind of felt a few nudges from God, and I thought I'd step out with them. Um, I felt there's someone here who the name Liz or Lizzie means something quite significant to you, and you also do your washing in a front loader washing machine. <laughs> Does that ring a bell with anyone here? Might be a nickname or someone who's, who's important to you. 
fill out the top loads. Make sense to anyone? I read a funny story last night of a guy who was like, oh, I'm on a crossroad, this person. And he said, does this date mean anything to you? And the guy's like, yeah, not really. And his wife was watching the service online and she was just like, getting really angry because it was their anniversary. <laughs> so generous, he's so kind. 